We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dino Weeks and Dave Woodard. Today, NASA's rocket to the moon was scrapped after a gas leak. That never stops my dad from launching a show. Hey! Here's Scott Thompson! Always time for a fart joke, right? Good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Weber on the board. Uh, Diane and Dave in the newsroom. Jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Um, I, I just realized that there's like two days left in the month. Two days left in August, and then uh, we're into September. Like, where the heck, I, I, like, all of, a sudden, all of a sudden, I'm sounding like an old guy, like my parents. Where, where did that go? What happened there? Um, yeah, by, by Wednesday, we're on to uh, a new month, and or after that, and then the long weekend, Labor Day, and kids are back to school. There you go. <laughs> Done with that. Thank you very much, summer of 2022. Please come back. It wasn't long enough. Oh, man. Uh, anyway, uh, that being said, uh, onward and upward, join and enjoy the last week of summer of 2022, unofficially, of course. All right, uh, beauty day out there, nice day, it's hot, uh, real hot and windy, sort of, so you get that kind of feeling that anything can happen, so just be aware, uh, we could get some severe thunderstorms, uh, and such, and, uh, and yeah, so anyway, just keep your eyes peeled for that sort of stuff because it is, uh, in the sort of situation where, um, we could be quite prone to, uh, some, uh, some wild weather a little later on in the afternoon. All right. Uh, jam packed show coming up. Lots to talk about. Uh, as, uh, Kurt mentioned, the Nassau rocket, uh, didn't make it up. We're going to talk about that coming up a little later on. Passport delays continue. Uh, unfortunately, in, in things around the airport, slowly getting better, but uh, no, not really. Uh, and then, of course, the big news uh, over the weekend, verbal attack on Christia Freeland, the deputy premier of uh, Canada. And, you know, I mean, anytime you see this, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it shouldn't happen. Uh, end of story. Uh, I understand people are frustrated. I understand people are angry. Um, but it can't get to this point because this just stops good people from entering politics. And we don't want it to, to get to that extent. Uh, that being said, we're going to talk about this in depth over the course of uh, the afternoon. And we're going to ask if the prime minister and, and other leaders have any role in this. Uh, in this escalation, in this uh, frustration, in this polarization uh, we have seen. Because, um, again, um, in my lifetime on the planet, the current prime minister is the most divisive prime minister uh, we have had, certainly that I can remember, and very much compare uh, that divisiveness as to what was going on during the Donald Trump days, just on the opposite ends of the political spectrum. Uh, and as soon as it goes too far to one direction, then obviously the extremists come out on the other on the other side and try to pull it back. And uh, at the end of the day, we have uh, the uh, minorities on the extreme dictating policy for those of us uh, that just want to go to work every day and raise a family and put a, a roof over our kids' house or, or a roof over our kids' heads, rather. Um, so anyway, I'm going to play you a clip, and this, um, you know, it, it's it's edited and such, but uh, this will give you an idea of what uh, Christia Freeland went through in Alberta. And, you know, oddly enough, uh, well... 
No, I'll talk about this later. No, I'll bring it up now. Oddly enough, I remember Christia Freeland being smug to our friends in the South because she did not travel with a security detail. And she said, we don't need it up here. And, you know, it's Canada. And uh, at the end of the day, um, whether it's extreme or not, no matter how polite it is, it is still divisive. Here's a sample of what happened. Christia. Yes. What the f*** are you doing in Alberta? You traitors! Get the out of this province! You don't belong here. You're a traitor! You yeah, go ahead and hide. All right, guys, you got a traitor in the elevator. Don't touch me. Go. We are Do not leaving. Touch me. We are leaving. Do you love the? Do you love her? Do you love Christy Freeland? No. Get. I will not. Don't tell me to get. I'll walk out my own power. Okay, so back off. Back off. I know this gentleman here. Shouldn't even be allowed in Alberta. She's destroying this country. Your kids are gonna have no future. Okay? I hope you get it. Somebody's gotta get it. Because we're the only ones fighting for this country right now. And it sure as hell isn't her. All right, uh, that's the encounter Christia Freeland, Deputy Pre- uh, Prime Minister, had in Alberta with uh, an Albertan uh, obviously not pleased with her. Here's what the Prime Minister had to say about the comments. As leaders, we need to call this out and take a united stance against it because no matter who you are, who you love, the color of your skin, how you pray, where you're from, your gender, you deserve respect and you deserve to live in peace without fear of threats or violence. We also, as well as calling it out exactly like the Prime Minister said, we have to ask what causes this and what we ourselves are doing to inflame these sorts of extremes. Here's what uh, Pierre Polyev, uh, I would guess front runner for the Conservative Party, had to say. Well, it's uh, absolutely unacceptable, and I can relate, of course, because um, I've been the subject of so much online harassment and abuse. My wife has received so much uh, horrific material directly to her social media account that we've had to hire a private security firm uh, to protect our family against uh, all of that abuse. So unfortunately, uh, this is all too common uh, and all too um, long-standing. We have to put an end to it and demand that everybody uh, treat other Canadians uh, with respect uh, when we debate political ideas. All right, uh, there you have it, Pierre Polyev, on uh, the harassment that Christia Freeland uh, has uh, experienced. Um, You know, uh, again, um, this comes from divisive leaders on both sides of the political spectrum. This comes from divisive leaders. Uh, Divisive leaders who create and play on the extremes for political gain, and then you wonder why you have a divisive electorate. It starts at the top, and it's great to call it out. It's great to call it for what it is, and that's accurate. But you also have to ask what's causing it and what you are doing to divide or polarize people who don't agree with the same things you do. I think that's a question all politicians should be asking themselves as well. So Niagara Falls, uh, obviously we know uh, just in the news last week because the uh, Go Train stuff, uh, now wants to become Canada's music city. I thought Hamilton was supposed to do that. Anyway, I'm not going to argue about it. Uh, And it kind of makes sense when you think of Vegas and all that other sort of stuff. And they're exploring an option of uh, putting out a proposal for some sort of music city strategy. To talk more about all of this, the mayor of Niagara Falls, Jim Diodati, and he's with us now. Jim, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. 
I'm doing well, Scott, and thanks for having me. So what makes a music city? How do you become one? Is there a badge? Is there a diploma? Is there a official certification? How do you get this, Jim? Well, there's a secret handshake and a tattoo, but uh, we'll talk about that after, when we're off air. But um, yeah, so we put in a request originally to the province to become a music city. And there's a little bit of a process. And what we're trying to do, we're trying to explore how we can use our current assets. So, I mean, we've got a lot of hotel rooms and how we can utilize them to increase visitation and extend the stay. And we thought music would be a natural way to do that. Everyone loves music. Everyone loves Niagara Falls. We bring the two together in Niagara Falls. How can we expand tourism? Uh, obviously, we're seeing uh, Falls View do something like this. They've done it in the past. What, what is your plan? What are you looking for? Um, uh, more club action, more halls, uh, medium-sized halls, bigger events, uh, stages. What, what sort of plan? So all of the above. So we're looking at doing it organically. So all the small clubs and including the big stages. I mean, we've got a lot of stages in this town and we figured if we could have events going on at all the locations, it would just be an excuse to come to Niagara Falls. If you like music, pick a stage, pick the kind of music you like, pick the venue that you like. And and you know that it's kind of like when you go to Las Vegas, you never have to ask, Hey, what's going on this weekend? There's always (laughs) something going on fun and Niagara Falls. We want to do it the same way, but with music, So you'll know whatever kind, as long as you like music, you're going to find a place that suits you, that you'll have a good time, and you'll take away some great memories. Obviously, this has to, you you have to get investment involved and and players involved. How do you get business involved in this? How do you get them interested? Well, that's why right now we're doing the request for proposals, and we're, we're doing a study right now to find out exactly how you do that. And that's a great question that you asked, Scott. So we're trying to find out exactly how we do that, how we start from the grassroots, and then work our way up. And we also want to enhance local artists and encourage local artists. When I say local, I don't mean just here in Niagara Falls, but I mean Southern Ontario and in Canada and how we give them a presence and give them a stage because every big artist performing on a major stage started at an event kind of like this. And, and we knew that there's this is going to be a popular place. We know we've already got the infrastructure. We know we can handle big numbers. We have a place for them to stay and for a place for them to eat. Now we're going to give them stages all around town where they can perform. And we're hoping we're going to develop some great talent and show people a good time in Niagara Falls. Obviously, because in many cases, Niagara Falls is a destination location. This seems like a perfect fit. Why hasn't this been done before? I mean, I guess it has in some ways, uh, and they've tried through the casinos and such, but this just seems to be a natural fit. Well, we did something similar, uh, but it was just at the tail end of COVID. And, and I think it could have been done a lot better. Just there were still some restrictions and concerns and a little bit of confusion around rules. So and, and we did a little taste of it. And boy, was it successful. We even did a, a late New Year's Eve show a couple months after New Year's with Blue Rodeo and a number of other performers. And, and we could feel that people love the music scene. You know, for 30 years, we've been doing the big Canadian New Year's Eve show in Niagara mm-hmm. Falls. And I like to say we offer a buffet of fun and excitement here in Niagara Falls. So there's meat for the carnivores, vegetables for the vegetarians, and everything in between. And we want this to be one more of the buffet offerings here in Niagara Falls and turn it into a whole meal on its own. Obviously, uh, Niagara Falls and in, in any city associated with a heavy uh, hospitality industry suffers during a global pandemic. Uh, is this just part of a plan to reignite this sort of thing post-COVID-19? Because, again, there's, as you mentioned, there seems to be that pent-up demand. People want to get out. 
You know, it, it is. And and at the same time, you know, it's funny, every time things go sideways, there's an opportunity to pick something up and learn something new. And sometimes, as they say, necessity is the mother of invention. And we went through a tough time. So we had to reinvent ourselves in a lot of ways. And we came up with a lot of creative ideas. And this was one of them. And sometimes we just take for granted that we're going to have big crowds because that water mm. going over the rock. And yeah. we know we're going to get 20 million visits every year, no matter what. Well, we're trying to find a way to get a little more juice out of that out of that orange, give it a little extra squeeze. And, and we think this is going to be one of the opportunities with, with music. Who doesn't like music and music and eating and drinking and the whole entertainment scene? And it all ties together. So that's why we felt that we did so well with this little thing that we did at the end of COVID. We thought, what if we did it on a grand scale, market, marketed the, the beans out of it, and really opened the city up and had this major music event. And that's what we're going to do. And hopefully it's going to grow legs and it's going to end up becoming a, a major draw for us. That's a valid point too, Jim, because again, because you've got that natural attraction there, you're going to get people anyway. And, you know, why not take it to the next level? Why not see how far you can go? Uh, I can't let you go without asking you, uh, the premier down there talking about seven-day go transit. What does that do for Niagara Falls? Well, you know, it's great. And I mean, just before COVID, our numbers were great. We're beating all the projections that Metrolinx put out for us. And it's only a matter of time that they're going to add a bunch more times. And and it's just great because it means you can live here in Niagara and you can work anywhere along the greater Golden Horseshoe. And, you know, the, the big challenge is always the highway. And it's either going to be congestion or construction. And you never know when you get on that highway, but there's no traffic jams on the train tracks. Hmm. And it's much more predictable. And their on-time number is fantastic. So we're grateful that the province is expanding the GO train right to Niagara Falls. And uh, I know yesterday, you know, a bunch of us went to the Blue Jay game and we count on that GO train to go a lot of places. And the more we can invest in public transit, it'll take the pressure off the highways, better for the environment, and definitely gives people an opportunity to live where they can afford to live, and go grab the good jobs out of town. Jim Deodati with us, Mayor of Niagara Falls, talking about their strategy to become Canada's music city and also talking about uh, seven-day go transit uh, from Toronto to Niagara Falls. Jim, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We always would like to bring in Paul Delaney from York University, retired uh, professor of astronomy, to talk about anything that's uh, space-related or what have you. And, of course, we have talked at length in regard to uh, the next stages of space exploration, which is Mars and, uh, again, re- uh, reconcentrating on the moon as a stage uh, through to Mars and such. And almost took a step towards that direction again today, but uh, safety always being paramount. It was scrubbed at the last minute, the launch. To talk more about all of this, Paul Delaney, York University, uh, Emeritus Professor of Astronomy, and with us now. Paul, thank you for your time. I hope you're well. I am indeed, Scott. Always nice to chat. So uh, it must be a real nail-biter if you're a scientist and you're sitting at a master control somewhere uh, and you're counting down from wherever and all of a sudden you get into the last few seconds and there's a red flag. What happened here? <laughs> it is a nail-biting experience. I guess this one was a little easier to take because the countdown held at T-minus 40 when we were all informed that there was an issue with uh, what they called an engine chill-down or a bleed. Uh, and what that basically means is that the four big engines at the bottom of the big orange external fuel tank of the Space Launch System, those four engines were being fed a small amount, a small amount of cryogenic fuel, uh, liquid oxygen, liquid hydrogen, 
that's at about minus 180 degrees Celsius. So before you start throwing literally hundreds of gallons, hundreds of liters per second into those engines, you cool them down so that the thermal shock is less on them. Well, the problem this morning is that three of those four engines chilled down as expected. The fourth did not. And basically, NASA tried troubleshooting it, but they ran out of time. And rather than not understand what the issue was, they scrubbed the mission today. They're examining the data. They may come back and launch on Friday. They may come back and launch on Monday, or they may push it to the end of September, depending upon what they find out. Okay, I know I'm going to oversimplify this uh, a lot, Paul, but um, I'm guessing you can't check these things until this process has started. My question is, why don't you check this stuff before you start counting down? Well, the short answer is you can't. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, so uh, think of it this way. The, the rocket is sitting on the launch pad and it's empty. It's like your car. It has no fuel in it. How do you test the fuel pump if there's no fuel in it, right? So yeah. same sort of idea here. You have to have the uh, the liquid fuel almost to flight pressure, almost as fully fueled as you can get, and then you begin to bleed this cryogenics into the engines. Uh, so until you're at that stage, which is deep into the count, you just can't test it. Right. So the process has to start before you can get to the stage and find out whether you can move forward or not. Um, how, right. how, how significant is an issue like this? How much of a delay is this? Good question. Uh, listening to NASA, I don't read into it that they are overly concerned. That is to say, it's not an engine issue. They really do believe it's an issue associated with feeding the engines enough of the cryogenic fuel to get to the temperature profile they want. These engines are actually very well understood. They are literally former shuttle engines. So we know what these engines are supposed to look like and how they will perform. Very, very reliable. But of course, they're being put at the base of a much bigger fuel tank and they're being asked to deliver a lot more continuous thrust than they were with the space shuttle. So the piping, if you will, the plumbing that leads to them has been redesigned. And while they have uh, done testing, but uh, testing of that system and got satisfactory results, it's now literally at the point where, you know, we want to see the whole uh, performance with, with all of the fuel and so on and so forth. Uh, being delivered to these engines. And that is where we think the issue lies. The plumbing might not just be big enough. There might not be enough uh, capacity for the bleed lines to chill the engines. Uh, right. So the solution could be a little bit as simple as, well, we'll just bleed a little longer than we were planning to do. Uh, if they have to go back and re-plummet, so to speak, with a bigger fuel line, well, that's a much bigger issue. We don't know is the short answer, but I'm caring to bet that they will find the right balance of time and fuel to get into those engines to get to the temperature profiles before Friday. Uh, this was an unmanned uh, rocket. Obviously, we have to remember this is in the test phase. Delays are part of the process. Oh, absolutely. Uh, this rocket has never flown before. Uh, the best analogy I can give you is go all the way back to November of 1967. That was the first time we flew the Saturn V 
for the first time, completely uncrewed. We know that two and a half years later or two years later, Armstrong and Aldrin were walking on the surface of the moon. But in 1967, the Saturn V had never flown. So we're in exactly the same analogous situation here. Artemis has never flown. Uh, and it's a much more complex vehicle than the Saturn V was. It's comparable in height and its performance is meant to be basically the same, if not better than the Saturn V. So this is a big deal. And NASA, of course, has got all of their lunar exploration and potentially flights to Mars based upon the Artemis architecture. They will not fly unless they are very confident that the system is as spec requires. So once it gets off the ground, what is this uh, flight all about? What's its objective? The objective is quite simple. Make sure it all works. So we're going from launch to Earth orbit to translunar injection to lunar orbit to bringing the Orion capsule back at quite phenomenal speeds, about 40,000 kilometers an hour, splash down in, I think it's the Pacific Ocean that we're coming down in. Uh, on board, there are literally human mannequins that have got thousands of radiation sensors and accelerometers. The aim of the Artemis One mission is to make sure everything works and that it is safe for people to fly two years from now. And why are we going back to the moon again in 60 seconds, Paul? should never have left uh mm. the moon <laughs> the, the moon is the jumping off point if we can live and sustain ourselves on the moon if we can turn this into basically a science oasis if we can turn it into an industrial complex who knows what lunar exploration benefits are going to result here on earth it's analogous to going into space for almost the first time and look how society now depends on low earth orbit so we're going back to stay and you know the cliche for the benefit of all humankind next time after this time this rocket flies will it have a crew it will and there will be a canadian on board put your money down on which of our four canadian astronauts will be on board but yes artemis 2 two years from now will be the same flight plan more or less as artemis 1 but with people on board first time back to the lunar orbit since 1972 exciting time to be an astronaut paul delaney with his emeritus professor of astronomy york university paul as always thanks for the time be well take care when there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Good news. Uh, anytime governments are giving cities money, it's usually good news for the city. You'll never really see them. Nah, nah. Well, let's not even go there. Uh, but the federal government investing uh, $3.6 million in six infrastructure projects in Hamilton, including the redevelopment of Beasley Park. Uh, and rather than list it all for you here, I'll bring in uh, people who know way more about it than I do. Uh, Ryan McHugh, who's a manager of tourism and events for the city of, of, Ham of Hamilton, plus Meredith Leonard, a senior curator, learning and interpretation, city of Hamilton, and Cynthia Graham, manager, landscape, architectural services, city of Hamilton. To all three of you, welcome so much. Thanks for taking the time. We appreciate it. Welcome, Scott. Thank you so much for having us. This is, of course, so, is, uh, Ryan McHugh, manager of tourism and events. Let's start with you then, Ryan, because obviously uh, there's cash coming, so it gets spread around through various uh, departments and such. What does this mean for tourism and events for the city? Absolutely. And as you said, uh, you know, any time uh, money from any level of government is making its way to Hamilton, that's a positive news story. And uh, the $3.6 million that were invested uh, in Hamilton, as you mentioned, are across six projects, and they're so wide-reaching, I had to bring a little backup with me today to talk about all of the uh, investments uh, as it relates to tourism. 
So the federal government had invested just uh, just south of five hundred thousand dollars in uh, the renovation of our visitor center. So that is located on the ground floor of Lister Block. Uh, mm-hmm. So with this money, we're going to be able to do a complete uh, rehabilitation of our uh, visitor center. We're going to completely upgrade all of the technology, and we're seeing more and more um, as visitors come to town. They're getting their information from our website. That's tourismhamilton.com. So this will allow a complete upgrade of technology, which will help us you know, better refer businesses to, uh, excuse me, visitors to restaurants, business districts, and shops. Um, as well, we're incorporating some museum space as well, where we're going to tell various Hamilton stories that will incorporate Indigenous, BIPOC, and other voices. And it really is a neutral downtown space which will really allow us to work with the community and create an own destination in its own right. So that's, uh, Scott, a little bit just of the visitor center piece, but I don't want to monopolize your time because there's quite a few other projects there uh, if you wouldn't want my colleagues to speak to those. Let's bring in Meredith Leonard, Senior Curator, Learning and Interpretation for the City. What does it mean for, for your department, Meredith? Um, I represent Hamilton Civic Museums, and we're so excited for this infusion of funding. Um, one of the projects that's going to allow us to move forward is the Hamilton Children's Museum, which is an incredibly, incredibly popular site in Hamilton. In fact, we haven't been able to meet the demand, so we're really looking forward to expanding our site, increasing access and inclusivity in this totally barrier-free space. It's also going to incorporate indoor and outdoor spaces for learning, for connecting, for gathering, um, and just bringing the community together. Uh, Our second project is St. Mark's Church, which is going to be a really exciting civic space. Um, as a host for cultural programming, community gathering, and it's going to provide a really important green space for the Duran neighborhood. Um, And we're just really excited to rehabilitate um, and repurpose this heritage building to, to add a really vibrant part to the community. How do you explain the Children's Museum and its success? And it just keeps on going. It's amazing. It is. I think everyone has such wonderful memories of the Children's Museum. It's a wonderful place um, for for play and for learning and for people to connect with each other and with their own families. And I think that's a really powerful experience. Um, and this, this money is going to help us provide that experience for many more Hamiltonians and visitors to the city. And Cynthia Graham, Manager Landscape Architectural Services, what does it mean for your department? Yeah, thanks uh, for having us on to talk about these exciting projects. So what it will mean for us is the ability to move forward on these two important parts of um, ongoing work that we have at Victoria Park and at Beasley Park. We've been working on both of those parks for many years, trying to um, update aging infrastructure and respond to needs of the community. For Victoria Park, we'll be able to construct a, a brand new spray pad and a new sun shelter, improve the accessibility and walkways through the park. And for Beasley Park, we'll be able to turn Kelly Street into an amazing new pedestrian space and improve some accessibility and pathways throughout the rest of the park. Uh, Here's a question to anyone that wants to answer it. Obviously, we're just coming out of this global pandemic or wherever wherever we are in it and such. How has that changed the way you do things and and the way you look at projects moving forward? So one, if uh, maybe I can start quickly. Uh, From a tourism perspective, uh, clearly the tourism industry was one of the hardest hit by the pandemic. So uh, during uh, the COVID restrictions and shutdowns, we relied more on more uh, on digital content. And, uh, you know, that's something that as we, uh, you know, come out of the restricted environment, uh, we're going to accelerate even further. So that is, uh, you know, say a lasting effect, but that allows us to get more current information to visitors um, quickly 
and uh, you know, around the clock, 24-7. So from a tourism perspective, that's what I'd like to share with your listeners. All right, Ryan McHugh with us, Manager of Tourism and Events for the City. Meredith Leonard, Senior Curator, Learning and Interpretation. And Cynthia Graham, Manager, Landscape, Architectural Services, all for the City of Hamilton. Uh, splitting up some govern, uh, government money to spend on our great city moving forward and all working hard to make sure uh, that, we, that we get the biggest bang for our buck. Uh, Ryan, Meredith, and Cynthia, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Good luck with all this. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Lots to talk to Elliot Tepper about Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University, Russia, preparing to begin military drills uh, with China. Also, obviously, the energy crisis and what it means moving forward. And tourism. Should Russian tourism be allowed in Europe? Should officials be going back and forth? Elliot Tepper with us now. Elliot, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you, Scott. Same to you. What about the tourist situation? We know that a lot of Russians go to Europe throughout the summer, part of the tourist season and such. Is that all still in full swing, or or has there been blowback from that? Well, there's already been some cutback from the Baltic states in particular prior to this, but the announcement by Estonia that they really want the EU as a whole to just stop all tourists, uh, that would be a major step up. Uh, I don't think Hungary would go along, but... uh, the, the key thing here is that the purpose of that is not to punish the Russian tourists, it's to have them wake up, as the leader of Estonia said. They have to wake up and realize what this unprovoked aggression against Ukraine has done. Do you think we're going to see that? I mean, and, and what, what will Russian citizens do, the average citizenry who just wants to take a vacation somewhere and all of a sudden can't go? How will that? Well, they were going, to, a number of them, to Crimea, <laughs> uh, which, of course, is yeah. Russian-occupied Ukrainian uh, beaches, among other things. Uh, and that uh, the recent explosions in Crimea may have put a crimp in that. And, of course, there's always Turkey. The fact that Russia is being treated as a pariah, will be treated at home by Mr. Putin as just further evidence as to why they, Russia has to be returned as a, as a great power to the world. He'll try to turn this to his advantage. But it's really the slow motion impact of all the various sanctions, including this one, which will be affecting people who can travel and want to travel. But the slow moving nature of the impact, how long will it take for the Russian economy and for the Russian society to actually feel the effect of the uh, all the blowback, the, primarily the sanctions, compared to our own ability to hold out against the rising price of uh, oil at the pump and gas at the pump, and what about Europe? How long can they hold out against the cutting off of, of gas supplies? And can they find enough gas supplies elsewhere or energy supplies elsewhere to backfill prior to the coming of winter. So it's that kind of a race going on now between basically who can suffer the most, the quickest, or the longest. Are we learning anything from what Europe, specifically Germany, is going through in regard to the weaponization of energy? A lot of people predicted this way back when. We remember when Germany, like cutting edge R&D for renewables, uh, now shutting down nuclear and and depending on... On, on Russia, I, I, how did we? How did they get here? I mean, you know, it, it seems as if uh, this played right into Putin's hands. Yes, the the answer to your question is Germany learned its lesson, or have there been changes? I think one of the the big takeaways from the invasion so far is that 
Mr. Putin is the father of a new Europe. Uh, Germany was gambling much earlier and with some justification that uh, complex interdependence, as us political scientists like to call it, would, would bring post-Soviet Russia into Europe. Uh, it would so entangle Russia into Europe that obviously they would no longer be aggressive or hostile. That has been proven to be a bad bet, and now everyone's scrambling. But the enlargement of NATO, the transformation virtually overnight of the decision of Europe to at least try to get off these energy supplies to get out from under. Uh, this, is a, this is a major accomplishment uh, by Mr. Putin so far. And now, going back to where you opened up, uh, Russian tourists can't travel, they can't go to Eurovision, et cetera, et cetera. So Mr. Putin is the father of a new Europe. The joining of Sweden and Finland into NATO, which seems imminent now, uh, really is a huge transformation of the security environment for Mr. Putin. So uh, he has gambled uh, that um, he can win. Europe gambled that they could uh, tame Russia or engage Russia. Russia was what, you know, there was talk kind of Russia joining NATO you know, mm. back in those days. But those days are over. It sort of sounds like, you know, you say tame Russia. It's like taming China. Everybody thought the same thing with Hong Kong. Yes. Um, well, China's, a, China's an interesting case here. The uh, You opened up by commenting that there's these joint military drills. Mm -hmm. There's a lot to be said about those. One of them is the, the sheer scale of it. If China and Russia, remember they met on February 14th, you and I talked about it, I think, mm -hmm. at the time uh, prior, just as the Olympics were uh, about to end and Mr. Putin actually traveled, unusually enough, he traveled uh, out of Russia, he traveled to China, and they signed a long declaration saying that from now on, well, two things, a lot of things, but one is they're both opposed to color revolutions, these uprisings that are people's power that can chase dictators from office. They don't like that. But they also said they were going to have a strategic partnership without boundaries, without limits. There were going to be no forbidden areas of cooperation. And then after that, the invasion went ahead into Ukraine. These joint military exercises are notable for their scale. Uh, they're I'm just quoting from that newspaper article that you're drawing on. More than 50,000 troops from a number of countries, 5,000 weapon units, 140 aircraft, 60 warships. This is a very large-scale drill, and it also involves China and Russia working together, but also India is there, along with uh, a, a number of other countries, uh, an interesting collection of countries, actually. So the, Russia is saying, basically, Okay, you thought you could close us off. You think you can isolate us, the visa, this visa, no tourism, and so forth. We are showing you that we have a way uh, to be out from under those sanctions. We will operate. We will, uh, we will continue to be a world power that everybody has to pay attention to. And that's in part what these drills are, are all about. Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor, Political Science, Carleton University, Changing World Order. <laughs> Uh, Elliot, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Oh, you're very welcome, Scott, and same to you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Earlier on in the show, we were talking about uh, Christy Freeland, Deputy Prime Minister out in Alberta. 
getting harassed by, uh, obviously, an angry Albertan out that. Uh, there has been an increase in hate and harassment targeting uh, not only politicians, but also journalists, particularly woman, women. To talk more about all of this, Jeffrey Dvorkin with us, senior fellow, Massey College, former director of journalism at the University of Toronto Scarborough and author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Jeffrey's with us now. Jeff, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well, thank you. I hope you are as well. So far, so good. I mean, I think we've talked about this before, Jeff. Why Why are we seeing this? Why is this happening? It seems we've forgotten how to agree to disagree. And I'm going to throw another one at you. How much of this has to do with the political climate? It's the leadership we have. Well, all of the above and, and, some, of the, and some of the below, Scott, I think... I've, I've been thinking about this since uh, since you called to ask me to think about these things. And one of the things that occurred to me is that we are seeing traditionally male areas of endeavor, politics and journalism, now being uh, taken and run by more and more women. And at a time when there's a lot of economic insecurity out there, COVID, uh, a shaky economy, a transition from industrial to service models. Folks in Hamilton understand this better than anybody else. Um, it got me thinking about, and this may be a bit of a leap, so help me, help me in this. <laughs> um, after World War II, when all the men came back from service overseas, and their jobs in the factories and the shipyards and in the farms had been run by women. And when the men came back at the end of the war, they basically had all the women fired, go back to raising families, go back to being homemakers. We're going to take our old jobs back. And slowly through the 50s and 60s, there rose a sense of what we now see uh, in retrospect as the growth of the feminist movement. I think what we're seeing now is the the next iteration of that that feminist and diverse movement that has been uh, pushed forward partly by the times, partly by the economy, certainly by the digital culture, where people, mostly all, all men, of course, uh, or mostly men anyway, are saying, uh, we're not going to take it anymore, and we're angry as hell, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so you have this rise of a kind of an anti-female vibe out there in the culture. And politicians um, are saying, you know, you can't do this. You have, to be, you have to be more inclusive. We have to be more diverse. And the people who are feeling that their traditional roles have been usurped. And I think that's part of what we're seeing now. That's my, that's my, that's my theory. That's fascinating, Jeff, because I, I, I'm, you know, I'm sitting here thinking that, like, wow, I didn't realize this was a gender issue. And I understand, you know, it's a bit of a stretch for you, and, and I see where you're coming from. However, it seems that that, uh, that um, aggression, that frustration, it's on both sides, uh, whether it's male or female. It's, it, it, it doesn't, it's not like it's just angry white men here. Um, you know, it, it seems that the population is just disenfranchised. So, I, ha, sorry, go ahead. No, no, please, please. 
I, I was going to say, I think you're right. And I think what we're seeing is certainly in media terms, we're seeing a kind of a generational gap. Um, Lisa Laflamme uh, happened to be happened to fall on one side of that gap by virtue of the alleged uh, allegation that we need younger, more diverse uh, audiences. Um, the issue of her graying hair is really a pretext. I think this is more about how is the digital divide going to work in favor of all segments in the society? And this is, this is the real challenge, is that at the one, on the one hand, we want more minorities and more women, and we want a more inclusive environment. At the same time, we have to understand that people are feeling aggrieved because they feel there's less of a role for them in the society that they thought was all about them. And I, and I think that one of the things that I've been, uh, I've been talking to some colleagues about is how newsrooms have changed. Um, I'm, I'm fairly ancient now, but when I was a boy in short pants in my 20s and I first stepped into a newsroom, these were rough places. Uh, they were mostly, they were all men, all male. The women mm. had very, no roles or secondary roles, if any. Um, there was a lot of uh, hail fellow well met, a little bullying, a lot of hazing, fair amount of alcohol. Um, and we put up with this uh, when we were starting out because if someone said, well, maybe you should go into something a little more uh, qualified or discreet. And my answer always was what and give up show business. Hmm. You know, it was it was the job that I wanted, and I was willing to endure a lot of stuff that my students will not put up with. Um, and I and, that, and that's a very valid point, Jeff. That's like that is, and I I never thought of that angle before, but it is it, it's a it's a very very valid point. Uh, on the other hand, it seems that some are. You know, after this division has been created, they're more interested in highlighting the reaction of somebody. Oh, my goodness, I can't believe they just said that to me. Oh, this is unacceptable behavior. Well, we all know that. But is anybody asking the question of why the, why they're so angry, why they're frustrated, why they feel nobody is listening to them? I, I mean, it, it's all we're pointing out, don't be them. But we're not asking, we're not uniting. We're not asking why they're upset. Rodney King said it best when after the Los Angeles riots, he said, can't we all just get along? Yeah. And I think that that's still a valid point. It's going to be, it's going to be tough. Um, I'm, a, I'm a recovering historian, <laughs> is, is my training. And I did, I did a couple of degrees in French history. And the French went through this in the 30s, where there was this sense of the, the economy was changing, the government was changing, the old ways of doing things were changing. And there was a group of, uh, I guess they were called in class terms, lower middle class, and they became enraged at the, the idea that they had no longer were running the show. And they called it in French, déracinement unrootedness and and so you had a lot of in the 30s the rise of some very nasty people that led into a very nasty situation in france during the war and after the war 
The same thing was going on in the 1950s, where people who were small business owners were feeling aggrieved and disenfranchised, partly because there was a wave of uh, colonial immigration into France. And these people in French society felt that they were being replaced. And we're hearing a lot about the great replacement theory that's going on. Somehow, governments, by, um, by insisting on uh, making room for people who were excluded, they, have, they also have to understand that they need to keep expanding the, the economic basis for our societies so that we all feel part of this. And that's the challenge right now. So what I think what's happening at CTV is kind of a symbolic thing that is an expression of a lot of discontent, not just about ageism and sexism, although that's that's pretty prominent now, and how, how CTV is gonna handle this. It's a good time not to be in management, I can tell you that. Um, it's going to be a huge challenge for media organizations and governments and universities to restore the kind of uh, condition of respect and and role in the society that they once enjoyed. And maybe, maybe it won't happen. But at this point, now we are at that, I think at that critical moment where we're kind of watching what everybody's doing, how people are responding, what are the kinds of solutions that we should be looking for. And it's it's we're in the middle of it right now. Jeffrey Dvorkin with us, senior fellow, Massey College, former director of journalism, University of Toronto, Scarborough, author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. As always, Jeff, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Thank you. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Elon Musk says, oh, sorry, I haven't done this. 453 Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. Uh, Will on the board. Also, uh, looking for your last word at 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your sale, uh, Hammerhead Trivia, after the 5 o'clock news. Elon Musk says uh, Tesla Motors is focusing on having self-driving vehicles on the road by the end of the year. Pipe dream or reality? Let's bring in David Booth, senior writer, post-media driving, driving driving.ca, and he is with us now. David, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm very well, in fact. So, David, we hear we hear about this a lot. What does this mean by self-driving vehicles? Is it is it cruise control with the hands off? What and are we set up from uh, a municipal standpoint, from a governance standpoint? Are we ready for this? Well, that's a different question on as to whether Elon Musk can make a, a full self-driving car by uh, the end of the year. And, I, and I've got to say, he's starting to sound like some of the crazy conspiracy theory folks that he's now voting for, that he's now signaled his uh, intention to vote Republican from now on. I mean, the the lineup of obstacles between him and full self-driving by the end of the year are, are, are just so enormous. It's, it's, it's kind of funny to watch him ignore them. I mean, um, first off, he's been promising uh, robot taxis, pretty much every year for the last three years, and he was going to have a million of them next year. None of those have appeared. Um, the NHTSA has a number of investigations of his products, some on automatic braking, and I think there's 83,000 vehicles under um, um, uh, uh, investigation for their current version of the self-driving software that he has. 
And just on Friday, um, uh, there's been the launch of a um, how would I say it, um, class action suit um, that um, uh, claims that Tesla's basically break for hallucinations. Um, I, I, you know, there's a U.S. senator that's campaigning um, with his basic program being that Tesla full self-driving is unsafe. And at the same time, he says that full self-driving, which is the name of his, of, of his um, software that isn't full self-driving, will actually be full self-driving by the end of the year. I mean, it's, you know, I, maybe he's been on Joe Rogan again smoking some guns. <laughs> I don't know. Is uh, he trying? I, what do you think the chances are that this company gets sold and somebody else picks it up? I I don't know. See, the problem, uh, I don't know that it gets sold. Um, I wonder about, I'd, I'd like to wonder uh, about uh, Musk's, um, uh, you know, continued leadership of it. I mean, on the one hand, he's, he keeps on acting crazier and crazier all the time. And, I, you know, I mean, I, it's, and yet the problem is, is that he has so many followers, you see, and his personality is so hmm. integral to the um to to the uh strength of that company uh, he, he's kind of like trump in the uh, and, and and the um and the yeah. uh, republican party you know i mean the, the man is batshit you know what you know what and 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 yet everybody follows along because they think that as crazy as he may be um that's the only way they can get elected. So I, 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 I don't know what the future of Tesla holds. I really don't. I, I, you know, prognostications don't matter a bit in this. It's not a normal business case. <laughs> Elon Musk says Tesla Motors focusing on having self-driving vehicles on the road by the end of the year. No. Uh, no. But not as, not as David's chance. reacting, maybe not so much. Uh, David Booth with us, senior writer, post-media driving, driving.ca. David, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We've uh, talked uh, at length over the course of the show about Christy Freeland, Deputy Prime Minister, and the incident in Alberta where she was harassed by a, uh, a person who was obviously unhappy with her politics across the nation now. Canadian politicians, current and former, are denouncing the incident, uh, which happened in Alberta, uh, against Deputy Prime Minister Christy Freeland. But is anybody asking why? Of course, it's obvious. Of course, yeah, it's bad. It's not good. That should never happen. Well, of course, absolutely. Does that even have to be said? But are we addressing why? Are we are we talking about why the country is so divided, uh, and what leaders are doing to fuel this divisiveness? The polarization we saw in the United States years ago, and we all said was coming here, and then watched it walk through the door. Uh, are we surprised? Are we surprised this is going on when we have politicians denouncing us with polite arrogance? No matter what side of the political spectrum you're on. Uh, let's bring in Tim Powers, Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Daddy. He's with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Scott, I am well. I'm in Newfoundland. And as you know, if I throw the rock far enough, I could get it into Alan Doyle's backyard. So, But I won't break his window because that would only be playing to the crowd right now and doing the same. Oh, man. 
Uh, I wasn't sure where you were going with that, but what the heck? I, I go down and at least have a you know a happy hour cocktail with the guy. What the heck? Well, he's in PEI uh, right now. He's doing a play in PEI. He's doing telecom oh. PEI. Come on, you're not up on your your I'm uh, not, I'm not, band member activities. Jeez. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not getting the newsletter. I got to get on the fan club and make Doc. sure I get that reinstated there. All right. So um, you know, it's easy to stand up and condemn this sort of thing, but are we fueling the fire here? Uh, can we be surprised? Nobody likes to see this happening, but it seems we have divisive leaders nowadays that that thrive on this. Uh, well, uh, let me say one thing first. I saw a great tweet last night from somebody who used to work for and with Hamilton legend Sheila Copps. And no one should excuse what happened to Kershia Freeland. I certainly don't. But Sheila Copps went through similar things. Other leaders, other high-profile politicians went through it. The difference is today on social media, it's amplified, and we should be calling people out. But the first point I'd make is that amplification also encourages people to you know, carry on with the behavior they did with Friedland. There was almost a joyful sort of um, uh, exuberance that those who yelled out the, the insults and tried to intimidate Friedland had with, with their efforts. And to your point, which is arguably the bigger and the more important one, uh, you know, you have Justin Trudeau today, you have Pierre Polyev today, yesterday, saying this is not acceptable, but in the case of both those leaders and many others, they, mm-hmm. too, will play off of people's anger. They'll use language that divides. Um, they'll all say the right things on, on days like today and over the weekend, but that hasn't stopped them from you know, going down into the gutter and encouraging guttural behavior to advance their political agendas. Um, how much, uh, how, how much should the leadership of all parties be looking in the mirror on this issue? I, I mean, Everybody is should. it all, is it all, is it all them or is it us? Is it us that we've just, well, it's all of uh, us, right? Look, there, there's no, sorry, I'm not to cut you off your, your question, but there's no, I, I think ultimately political discourse starts with leaders. So, and when you're campaigning and you cited the Trump example, or you talked about the polarization in the U S I mean, you know, when you speak of people in, in discarding tones, when you're uh, w- when you're beyond criticizing them, or occasionally being funny and poking a little bit of fun at people, I'm okay with all of that. That should humor is still important. Critique is vital, but when you make it so nasty and so personal, and you glorify it, I mean, what is January sixth about if it isn't about glorifying? You know brutality and encouraging loudish, dangerous behavior. Uh, and the, the, looking at look in the U.S., how terrified people are uh, in the Republican Party of going against Donald Trump, because it, there is some working effectiveness to all, all of that. So, on, you know, uh, we have to give people reason to find other places to direct their dissatisfaction, and we can't encourage violent, you know, violent language and potential violent behavior. It's it's just it's going to lead us to a very very bad place. Look at what's been happening in in Britain. You know, we've had MPs killed, we've had them stabbed, we've, you know, and it's it's all part and parcel of the climate in which we live, where we all, you know, a lot of people think it's okay to uh, to to move from language to physical force and violence to prove your point.
Uh, and, and of course, there's there's nothing, there's no way to excuse any of this activity. But you know, when you're constantly pushing people's buttons on either yeah. side of the extreme, how can you be surprised when this happens? I mean, and and you know, I can think of the prime minister. I can think of, and and Polyev is is no different with you know what he's doing on his side. But I mean, you know, when you think of um, the prime minister, uh, Christia Freeland, Melanie Jolie. There's a, a very, very, very polite arrogance about them. And, and then when someone like this, either. no, it's not, not in the case of, of Minister Jolie anyway. Um, and then when all of a sudden, you know, a bad example uh, rears its ugly head, it's like, look at, see, there's those people. There's those convoy people. As if the only one that's angry in the country is white guys. You know, like it, it's so distracting and it's so counterproductive uh, by just saying condemning these people with this poor behavior, as opposed to the man who created a ruckus in Ottawa when ninety five when ninety percent of the truckers were already vaccinated. I mean, come on. Yeah, well, and it, look, it's the it's a, a political formula, right? Because given how you win national elections, when you Trudeau's case in the last one, you didn't even need more than thirty four percent. So, you know, you can find that thirty four, thirty five percent, and and play to them. It takes hard work to address the grievances of many and take the time to listen instead of playing off of them. And we've created such mechanized political leaders uh, that, you know, true leadership and of the Churchillian variety and the like in addressing bigger societal problems is thrown out the window. We look, look how we run political campaigns. They're so socially media focused by activating people on social media to respond in a certain way. I mean, look at to Polyev's credit, how he's used his own direct form of communications to deliver messages to different groups that have some uh, appetite for his freedom and other messages, and Trudeau does the same thing. So uh, there's a lot to look at in all of this, but I still believe it ultimately starts with leadership and, and, and the people like you, me, and everybody calling things out when we see them and then trying to have a civil discussion about these things, not always going into a corner and saying, you're an idiot because you think that, as opposed to, okay, I don't agree with you, but tell me why you think that. And Aaron O'Toole tried to play the center, and look what happened to him. He had to walk the plank. <laughs> yeah, but I don't think it's just about playing the center, Scott. I think there's a, we're missing civility, and civility doesn't, yeah, I think Good point. they hear the word civility, it means you're just some kind of pushover. You and I are of a similar age. When you grew up, yeah, people had pretty strong positions, but I remember being always told, listen to what the other side is saying, just don't disregard it, and we've thrown out any value of knowledge and wisdom in history. This stuff has happened before, before social media, people not listening to each other, and, and we've had lots of societal cleavage, death, and damage over a consequence, as consequences of that. Well said. Tim Powers with us, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data, talking about the toxic environment that is politics today. Uh, Tim, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Take care, my friend. Bye. 
All right, let's bring in Christian Leprac, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute. Uh, it seems Ukraine military is changing uh, the way it does things. And what about Russia and China teaming up for military exercises? Christian Leprac is with us now. Christian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, good afternoon, Scott. Uh, we've had this discussion before, Christian. It just seems that, you know, a- after weeks and months and what have you, six-month period, this is just dragging out. It's just, it's a long haul. It's a, it's, it's a, just a tragic scenario, what we're seeing happen to Ukraine. Uh, and it's always sort of been defending itself. Is it changing its tactics now? Is it changing its strategy? Uh, well, we'll have to wait and see. Ukraine has announced counteroffensives before repeatedly sort of since the month of May. Uh, this could also be an effort just to throw off some of the Russian resource allocations um, and make them more uncertain. Uh, at the same time, Ukraine is, of course, under considerable pressure to make inroads, both because it's on a clock before the rainy season, because once the fields get all muddy um, then uh, and we get sort of into the later fall, Uh, this will all grind to a stalemate by necessity and of course Ukraine is also under some pressure to show uh, to continue to have Western support uh, so that Western weapons deliveries continue Uh, and there's a risk here of uh, fatigue among Western supporters for Ukraine so this is uh, if this is the counteroffensive it is a high-stakes political gamble that is not without considerable risk for both the Ukrainian military and the Ukrainian leadership so uh, when will we know? I mean, uh, th- th- there seems there could be a, a lot of short ger- short-term gain or pain here. So we may not know or not know at least in the next couple of days in the sense that the last thing Ukraine would want is a massive war of attrition with Russia where it engages in the sort of mass onslaught that Russia has engaged in because that's mm-hmm. a conflict and a confrontation that Ukraine with fewer resources cannot win. Ukrainian strategy has been very adaptive at trying to use agility and high technology to its advantage. And so I would expect that if this is a counteroffensive, it would more reflect something akin to irregular warfare, where you have sort of uh, individual strikes, you try to demoralize the Russians by hitting headquarters and supply lines, you might have a big attack here, a big attack there. So rather than one huge sort of front line and trying to make inroads across that front line, force the Russians to not quite know how to allocate their resources, where the next attack might come. Uh, So I think it'll be interesting to watch what strategy the Ukrainians believe they have with the relatively limited resources that are not giving outside observers necessarily full confidence that Ukraine can actually succeed to show that this is actually doable and Ukraine has the means to push the Russians back. Uh, How does Crimea uh, play into all of this? Yeah, good question. So Ukraine has been employing what it calls sort of a deep strike strategy. So to demonstrate that it can hit the Russians behind their own lines. Um, and when it does hit the Russians on territory that the Russians claim as sort of Russian national territory as opposed to occupied territory. And Crimea, of course, is sort of an interesting, uh, interesting sort of hybrid there. Uh, Ukraine has not claimed explicit responsibility for those attacks in contrast, for instance, 
instance, to the south of Ukraine uh, or in the Donbass region when it has launched attacks. And so uh, reaching deep into Crimea is important because that's where ultimately the troops that are supporting the south are stationed, where the supply lines are, where some of the headquarters capacity is. And we have to remember, in distinction to, for instance, the troops that came and tried to attack Kiev, the troops in the south, by and large, a pretty well-seasoned, coherent, cohesive fighting units that had been drawn together before the war, which is part of the reason why Russia was more successful in the south than it was in attacking mm. Kiev. So uh, the Ukrainians here are also up against a formidable fighting force. Uh, do you see the day when Ukraine retakes Crimea? Certainly, that's what the leadership has promised. And I think this is the debate between is this sort of uh, World War One or World War Two scenario. In the World War One scenario, we basically grind to a halt and there's some sort of treaty and then you have years of uncertainty, maybe a Kashmir type scenario. You continually have smaller or bigger flare ups for many years to come um, and an opportunity for the Russians to regroup. Whereas I think what President Zelensky has signaled is that Ukraine is gunning for a decisive victory here, in particular when it comes to the south because the south is strategically what's really much more important to Ukraine than the Donbass region because if Ukraine ends up being cut off from the ability to access the Black Sea and becomes landlocked then Ukraine will be forever a rump state and completely impoverished and so both the access to the sea as well as ostensibly control over Crimea uh, would be key Ukrainian objectives but clearly with the resources Ukraine currently has uh, reconquering Crimea is not in the near future uh, as a prospect. Uh, Russia preparing to begin military drills with China. How much of a concern is that? Well, it's interesting, right? Because any of those drills would necessarily divert energy and resources from the fighting in Ukraine. And there's been complaints, mm. for instance, within Russia, that Russia continues to stage military parades and uses the military for all sorts of other nationalistic purposes that really don't serve the purpose of achieving military objectives um, in Ukraine. So in some ways, you can say, look, if the Russians want to have exercises with the Chinese and want to send troops there, uh, from a Ukrainian perspective, all the better because those are troops that are not going to be available, at least in the media term, uh, to, uh, to, 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 for the conflict in Ukraine. Um, it'll be interesting to see to what extent that it, if they were going to cooperate, the Chinese and Russian military, it would mean that they would need to actually be able to ascertain sort of common objectives. So this might be more to see to what extent perhaps there's Chinese technology that the Chinese could sell to Russia that might be, that could be integrated with, uh, uh, with Russian capabilities. So you see this less as a sort of strategic, say, alliance or so, um, or coalition, uh, more than sort of an exploratory trying to figure out what they might be able to do together. And remember, Russia has considerable misgivings about China, especially in the East, where it has considerable also military concerns about potential Chinese territorial aspirations on Russia's East. So this is not necessarily going to be a, a, a very lasting friendship. Uh, the West obviously supplying Ukraine. Any reason, to, any reason not to believe that China would do the same for Russia? I mean, if they are compatible. Yeah, so uh, we, this is a really interesting question because what we've seen by 
Chinese entities is that, for instance, Chinese banks and some of the major Chinese industries have been quite reticent to cooperate with Russia because the implication would be is that the, uh, the Americans would impose sanctions that would then block them or risk them from bl being blocked from the international financial system, which could have very severe consequences for those institutions. So for all the people who are critics of the sanctions against Russia and that those aren't achieving anything, well, certainly in China, they've had a considerable deterrent effect uh, on the engagement that especially Chinese ind individual Chinese entities have had with Russia. And that's a conundrum that China would have to overcome because if it throws its lot in with China, uh, it would have serious economic repercussions for China mm. at a time when China is already sl facing massively slowing economic growth, when it is facing drought, and when it is facing a, a social unrest, and when it is facing a run on certain banks. Uh, so I'm not sure that ch the Chinese regime will necessarily want to pile on um, on the economic and social challenges it's already confronting. Christian Leprac, Professor, Royal Military College of Canada, Queen's University, and fellow at the Macdonald-Laurie Institute. As always, Christian, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you, Scott. Have a lovely afternoon. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Remember when the only thing that you could get delivered to your house was like pizza or Chinese food? <laughs> and, and what was it about those restaurants that made delivery perfect for them and not everybody else? Bizarre, because now you can virtually get anything from any restaurant anywhere because of food delivery services, uh, which is great. Some people are really excited about that. Some not so much, especially if you're standing in a line and somebody from a driving service goes up in front of you <laughs> and goes into an express line and gets theirs first. Um, but, you know, uh, what about booze? The beer store says it now has more than 250 locations on Skip the Dishes after expanding its pandemic pilot project. Uh, I, you know, I guess it's a great idea, but I, I'm surprised it's allowed. Uh, it, it, to me, it's, it's not about the customer or the service. It's will government allow this sort of thing? And clearly they do. Let's get Bruce Winders take retail analyst and author of retail before, during and after COVID-19. He's with us now. Bruce, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Surprised that the beer store is uh, jumping on board, skip the dishes. And again, I thought the biggest challenge would be regulations, government and such. Yeah, no, not super surprised. I mean, I know the Ford government relaxed some of the uh, requirements during the pandemic, you know. So if you're a restaurant, you could ship uh, alcohol along with your order. Mm -hmm. And that was to sort of try to help restaurants make a buck. And uh, they extended it on. So not super surprised um, that this is happening. It's kind of a sign of the times. You can buy almost anything online, as you mentioned previously. So what about fee? Is this any different than ordering a meal or anything else via Skip the Dishes or any of the other locations or any of the other yeah. services rather? I don't think so. I think it's very similar to everything else that you do on Skip the Dishes. I mean, there is uh, fees associated with that, whether it's you pay within the price or whether the merchant pays, you know, there's someone's paying somewhere. But uh, I guess, you know, these days consumers will pay for convenience. We, they've proven that, right? That, you know, if you're sitting at home with your pajamas and you want a six pack, then you're okay uh, having that paid for by yourself or indirectly or something, paying more for the product, whatever the case is. So definitely there's a, there's a niche there, where, and it's probably bigger than a niche, but a lot of folks are willing to pay for convenience now, much more than maybe 20 or 30 years ago. It was interesting because last week we were talking, earlier on in the week we were, or no, it would have been last week, <laughs> we were talking about tipping and how that's gone up. 
uh, yeah. from 10 to 15 to 20 and now uh, up to 30 percent. Uh, but as you said, people will pay for the service. People will, will pay for the convenience. Is there a sweet spot when it comes to those fees? At what point do people say, eh, you know, it's not worth it? I think, you know, as long as they feel it's, you know, just a couple bucks, just a few bucks, they're willing to pay, right? You know, um, whether it's tip or whatever, you know, call it five bucks or something. It really depends on the commodity. It depends on the provider and the customer, right? As long as they feel it's nominal. You know, I have a friend who worked uh, at a one of the food, food places, and they talked about someone who ordered, you know, a, a Coca-Cola bottle or Coca-Cola can, and it cost them $10 when all the fees were put in there. So, there, you know, there's, that's mm. probably a, a real exception. But I think as long as it's seen as good value and it's not too much, you know, a few bucks here and there, I think you're not going to get much resistance from some people. What about ID? Yeah, well, I read uh, in a posting here about this that the drivers have to be smart serve approved which means mm. they have to show ID at the door. So it's actually fairly strict. You know, the uh, skip the dishes has a fairly strict process in place where, you know, you have to, if they if they think you're inebriated, they won't ship you. They won't give you the alcohol. You have to show ID. You know, if they, if you, they think you're buying it for a minor, they won't give you the alcohol. So there is some checks and balances in place here, thank God, that uh, are still in place. And uh, hopefully that works well to uh, keep alcohol out of the, out of the hands of people who shouldn't have it. What about the LCBO? Yeah, the LCBO, I haven't heard much about that. I mean, I know I saw something somewhere about the LCBO allowing for online delivery and pickup. They opened up a website quite a while ago, and I'm assuming it's still going. And the LCBO has made some major inroads in the beer market uh, over the last 20 years. You know, it used to be all the beer store, and that's yeah. sort of been broken up a little bit. And, you know, the LCBO's done quite well. With, uh, with beer, and even some of the big grocery stores have done pretty well with beer as well, right? So so it's uh, it's definitely not a cartel like it used to be. <laughs> you know, there's a few spots where you can get beer. Obviously, it's different types of beer. The LCBO is more for the craft, I believe, uh, and imported beer. But, you know, you can get beer in a few places now in Ontario. Many thought the world was coming to an end when it went into, you know, the Costco's or the, or the Walmart's or the grocery stores. What has been the result of all of this? Well, I think, you know, overall, beer beer is, is a challenged category. You know, when I did some reading there a little while ago, beer is something that's actually in decline. Um, you know, a lot of younger folks aren't really picking up a beer mm-hmm. like maybe people our age used to. And they're opting more for alcohol or weed or things like that. So the beer market's sort of under, under uh, fire anyways. And I think, you know, the more distribution points they have, the better chance they have of at least trying to maintain their top line. Bruce Winder, retail analyst and author, Retail Before, During, and After COVID-19 is the book. As always, Bruce, thanks for the time. Be well. Yeah, you too. Take care. Uh, Beer Store now announcing uh, it's on Skip the Dishes. Skip the Dishes. Skip the Empties. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's a wrap for us. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. And uh, thanks to Will, the two Wills, for producing today. Diane and Dave in the newsroom. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. My name is Maria. So I am blind, and I was listening to the Elon Musk idea of having the self-drive cars. For years, I think myself and other blind people have said, get those things on the road. I mean, anybody who's lost their license or is 80 plus, 
um, who is blind. We want those cars. Heck, we can do even start a Twitter and Drive campaign for Elon. Hire us, hire us. We'll do it. Thank you. There you go.